0: Over the past two weeks, we've been moving through the book of First Peter, and today we are at First Peter 10 I'm sorry, First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Now if you've been with us, you know what a grand theological journey Peter's taken us on in just these first nine verses. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon sums up chapter one with these words. He says, "In this chapter, we have all the great central truths of the gospel." Election, redemption, regeneration, effectual calling, sanctification, and final perseverance. Brothers and sisters, whenever we need consolation, let us never go away from the gospel to find it. The child of God always finds his best comfort in the things of God. And that's what Peter believes, because Peter is writing a letter of encouragement. And he starts a letter of encouragement with theology. And as we've been talking about, our theology is meant to lead us into doxology, into praise. We're chosen, called out, adopted, loved, kept for an inheritance and then preserved to the very end. And the more we search the scriptures, the more we delve into the things of God, we see salvation from beginning to end. we gaze upon the sufferings of Christ and the glories that are to follow. And the more we do that, the more we will come to know and love Jesus as our Savior. We'll see how amazing, amazing grace truly is. So with that in mind, let us continue where we left off. I want to encourage you to read along with me. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We ask that your Holy Spirit, the one that empowered the apostles and the prophets, the same Spirit that we now worship in today, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Sir, we would see Jesus. Show us yourself, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. In chapter 1, 3 through 4, as we looked over the last couple of weeks, Really, the entire theme of scripture is put forth by Peter. He says, according to his God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead with an imperishable inheritance. Then he closes that little introduction in verse nine, and he says that the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Now, instead of moving right into holy conduct, holy living, which we're going to get into next week. He stops for a minute. He pauses. And for three verses, he says, I want to talk about scripture. I want to talk about scripture itself in the Christian life. Many of the people who would have been reading this letter, who would have would have looked at this letter, were the first ones to hear about Jesus from either Peter himself or from one of the other apostles. He says, what you heard about Jesus from me, what you heard about it from others, did not come based on our own authority, but rather, verse 12, it was preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so he wants these Christians to know that everything he just said, all, all the first nine verses, were not him just making things up. He wants us and them to have confidence that when we hear the scripture preached, it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He also wants them to know that this is the same message that was preached by the prophets in the Old Testament. You'll remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're walking along and they're mourning because Jesus has just died. And they've heard reports about maybe he's come back. And and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and they don't know it's Jesus. And so they're telling Jesus about what happened to Jesus. (laughs) It's a very comical kind of moment. Until Jesus, in Luke 24, 25 through 27, he looks at them and he says, O foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures about himself. See, before Peter gets into holy living, he starts in verse 10 with a foundation for our conduct. Concerning the salvation, the prophets prophesied, meaning the theme of the entire Bible is salvation in Christ. The suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories are from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation. That's the message. And in response to that good news, then we're going to go on to live holy lives. You see, we have to start with the, the news. We have to start with the theology. We start with the news and then we go into holy life. Why are we to live holy lives? Because of what Christ has done. For these soon to be suffering Christians, Peter says this message will be your encouragement. The fact that Jesus has died for you, has suffered, and now is, reigns in glory, let that be your hope. You're going to face sufferings now. The glories will come. And it's important for us to see that and know that as well. Right? We, we, we face sufferings now, but the glories are to come. The king of glory is the king on the cross. And so we should expect this to be our path to glory as well. As we imitate Jesus, as we take up our cross daily and die to ourselves. You see, the Bible says crosses will come. It doesn't pretend like we will not have sufferings, like we will not have tears and trials. It says crosses will come and they're not there to weaken us. The Bible says they're actually there to kill you. Because by taking up our cross and dying, Christ becomes our strength. He becomes our living hope. And the man who has Christ has everything he'll ever need. This was something that Peter didn't always understand, did he? You'll remember he was there and, and Jesus was telling about the sufferings and the future glories. And Peter stops him and says, no, never, Lord, that will never happen to you. And then Jesus looks at him and rebukes him. This rock man, this, this one on whom he would build the church, he looks at him and he says, you have the things of Satan in mind. Messiah was always to come and give his life as a ransom for many, And then even with the rebuke, Peter still didn't get it. Because during the night arrest in Gethsemane, they come for Jesus and Peter draws a sword. He's ready to stop and defend Jesus. We must stop the suffering. And it's not really even until the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and the disciples in power, that this message now corresponds, is now in harmony with the Old Testament prophets as well. Listen to Peter in Acts 3.15. He's emboldened with the Spirit. He preaches and he says, You killed the author of life, there's the sufferings, whom God raised from the dead. There's the glories. Peter gets it. Paul in Acts 17.2-3, he's witnessing to the Jewish people. He says, He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, there it is, And then to rise from the dead. There's the glories. The suffering and subsequent glories of Christ. That's the theme of all of Scripture. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament shows this theme playing out. You remember, the prophets are always looking forward to glory. They're always looking forward to a day in which Christ would reign. And a day in which God and all the nations would come and bow before him. And from the very beginning, God starts this covenant with Abraham where he calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of a pagan land. And he says, I'm going to make promises to you and to your descendants. And I'm going to give you land and I'm going to promise these things. I'm going to promise an everlasting relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it promised that God's people would be a blessing to the other nations as well, that they would be a blessing to people. But time and time again, we see The cycle of suffering and glories over and over and over. They rebel, they repent. God sends a redeemer or a type of Christ to save them and lead them. They rebel, they repent. God sends a redeemer and so forth and so on. And this plays out over and over and over. And each subsequent time, it seems like the people are getting a little worse, a little worse. a little. Things are getting a, a little bad. You know, we go from Egypt into Babylon. And we go from Babylon into Rome. And the the prophets pronounce God's judgment upon people's sin, but they always almost end with grace. It's always grace and mercy. If you would but repent and turn, I will hear from heaven and have mercy. You think about the vision in the Old Testament of the dry bones. What a sad vision that would have been if he said, look at the dry bones. That's us. That's you. That's it. But he says, prophesy to the bones. There's there's restoration for God's people. The final Old Testament book, Malachi, ends with a promise that Elijah would come. God's not going to leave his people like this. Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Suffering due to our own sin, yes, but glory to follow due to God's grace and mercy. There's a commentator, Edmund Clowney, who writes this he said the prophets pictured restoration of all that had been lost the land the temple the sacrifices the priesthood but the restoration does not look back to recover the past it looks forward to God's final renewal God's fulfillment will transform everything not only will the remnant of Judah and Israel be gathered but the remnant of the Gentiles will be gathered with them Eden will be restored and more You see, that's the message of the prophets, sufferings, but glories in Christ. The darkness will be gone. Incredible glory will come because the God of glory will come himself. Now, this has uh, profound implications for us as the church. We are called out. We are to seek to live holy lives. We are to bless, as Peter is going to say, others as a royal priesthood. The priesthood's back, right? We're to bless people as Christ's ambassadors. Our suffering is not a sign that God hates us or has betrayed us, but rather it's a sign of our fellowship with Christ's sufferings. Our suffering now, especially for Christ's sake, becomes a sign of the glory that will follow. And we spoke about this last week. We talked about the trials that Peter says trials are going to come. Remember, he's writing to people who will be persecuted. And he says these trials are are meant to mold you and shape and, and, and refine your faith in the fire. We want to come out of the furnace looking like Christ. We want to come out being transformed and renewed in the image of Jesus. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. There's the suffering. But take heart, for I've overcome the world. There's the glory. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. I love that. Listen to that. They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Many of you are familiar probably with the pastor, Andy Stanley, or I'm sorry, Charles Stanley and his son, Andy Stanley. Charles Stanley, I used to listen to on the radio with my mom all the time. They'd come on and his, his son, Andy Stanley, uh, has kind of come under fire recently and rightfully so, because he said we must take the Old Testament and his words, we must unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And he's not alone in thinking that. Even from the very earliest church, there was a guy named Marcion who thought that the Old Testament needed to be tossed out because it was an evil God. And so we just get rid of all that Old Testament stuff. And now we live in the New Testament and we just focus on the Gospels. Is that what Peter's saying? Is Peter saying we can do that? Can we take the parts we like from God's word and then we just get rid of the other parts that we, we don't like? He's saying, absolutely not. He's saying you won't be able to understand the Old Testament unless you understand, I'm sorry, the New Testament, unless you understand the Old. We have to have both together. The prophets were talking about grace that belongs to you. And so if you want to take away the prophets, then take away the grace. They searched and inquired carefully. Listen to the language of that. Inquiring what person or time... The spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They were so excited about what God was telling them that they, they spent all, they, they meditated on it. They searched and they inquired. They, they went forward. They said, Lord, tell us more. Now, just a few important things to pull out here. When we read God's word, we are to search and inquire like The prophets. God's word comes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to them, but it's also in such a way that the prophets and the apostles were active agents as well. You see, they searched and inquired. Luke says he carefully investigated in order to write an orderly account of the things that have taken place. He got eyewitness testimony, he was carried along by the inspiration of the Spirit. The prophets and the apostles were ordinarily active and not passive agents of revelation. There are certainly times where God says, "Hey, write this down exactly as I say." And they said, "Yes, sir." And they did it. But this passage highlights the participation of the prophet. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 3:16, "All scripture is breathed out by God." And Peter in his second letter says, "No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man." but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the holy spirit. He's saying you can trust this. You can trust the prophets, you can trust the apostles. We are this is this is what we call in technical terms verbal plenary inspiration. They were carried along. You are when you read God's word, you are reading the words of God. And so they searched and inquired. And so we should do the same. We should be diligent in our bible Study; Those are two active words, right? Searched, inquired. Searched, inquired. They're not passive. Do you search the scriptures? Do you pray and inquire of the Holy Spirit? Lord, Lord, you wrote this. Would you tell me what it means? I'm, I'm struggling. Would you tell me about heavenly and holy things? We must be in God's word. We must be people of the book. And so many people wish today that God would speak to them. And, and I just hold this up and I say, he does. He did. He, he has. Sp- Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Infallible, inerrant. We use all these words, right? Inspired, sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. Now, Bible study takes commitment. You know, we spent three months talking about Prayer which is a spiritual discipline. And you think, well, you know, prayer, that's pretty easy, right? Well, it, we, we spent three months talking about something that is fairly easy, and yet it's confusing and it's hard to do for many people. And so we need to think about God's Word. We have to be washing ourselves daily in His Word. Wake up 15 minutes early, you know, put off, turn off the TV in bed for just 20 minutes, you know, read God's Word. Take, take little things like this, set an alarm, To set time aside, we we have Bible reading plans, we have Bible apps. If you want to hear celebrities read the Bible, you can do that, you can pay for that. As someone once said, a Bible in the hand is worth two in the bookcase. So how can you expect to know God? How can you expect to know God's will for your life if you're not reading the words that he wrote and the words way he talks to us? This is how God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. So I encourage you, make it a priority. Verse 11 again. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so their message from beginning to end again was one of grace. Grace via the suffering and glory of Christ. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Have you ever wondered that? How are you saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how they were saved. They were saved by looking forward in faith to the promises of God, to the Christ that would come. And we are saved by looking backwards in faith to the Christ who has come. And then again, now now we look forward to the time when he will come again. And Jesus is not merely one example of many, but rather his alone is the suffering that brought about redemption and his alone is the glory that will bring about restoration for all of us the prophets spoke as they were carried by the spirit and the spirit peter says that carried them was the spirit of christ himself in revelation 19:10 there's an angel and he's telling john the part of the revelation he's telling them about the marriage supper of the lamb it's just a beautiful piece of scripture and John is so overwhelmed. He says, when we, he, we, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. He sees this angel and he's hearing the prophecy and he falls down to worship him. But the angel says, you must not do that. Stop. Get up quick. Get up. Get up. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now listen to this. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. And so not only does prophecy bear witness about Jesus, but Jesus bears witness about himself through prophecy. The divine logos, as John calls him, the word made flesh incarnate. He is the source of all prophetic testimony about himself. And Peter is a firsthand personal experience of this. He knows that the spirit which filled him at Pentecost, which who opened his eyes is the same spirit that Christ promised to send after he left. Remember, he said, I will send a counselor. I will send one to be with you. Then the spirit illuminated his entire life. We have a little fisherman. Just this little fisherman named Peter. Saying what all those, uned- all those educated rabbis missed somehow. He says the Old Testament was about Jesus. It was about his suffering and his glory. And you see that in Paul. Paul is pulling out things from the Psalms. And the, the book of Hebrews is filled with... The whole message of Hebrews is Christ is better. He's what they were all pointing forward to. Amos 3.8, one of the Old Testament prophets. Listen to this. He says, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The lion of the tribe of Judah thunders and roars through the voice of the prophets and the apostles and so what i'm trying to get across here is that there's one lord one faith one baptism one message one plan of salvation one people forever united in one christ jesus says the same yesterday today and forever we have 66 books Various genres, 40 plus authors from a variety of backgrounds and occupations, 1,500 plus years, 10 civilizations, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1 story, 1 Christ. Isn't that remarkable? There's continuity between the Old and New Testament because the same spirit inspired both books. And so we are content every single Sunday to get up here and I'm content to preach Christ crucified. I'm content to preach Christ, his sufferings, and his subsequent glories, because every single story whispers his name. Unhitch the Old Testament. (laughs) What a foolish thing for someone to say. Both testaments are about Jesus. The prophets' own prophecies excited them and inflamed them with hope because they looked forward. They didn't even understand always what what they were preaching about. Verse 12, for it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. God's plan of redemption was so amazing, they spoke mysteries that they themselves did not even comprehend. They ministered those marvels to us. They wrote down prophecies they knew that they might never actually get to see themselves. And they did it joyfully because they knew we were the ones being ministered to. Peter's trying to point out that the people reading this letter are the heirs to the prophets full message. He's saying, you know, the prophets, you know what they talked about. It's here. It's here, isn't it? Paul talks about this in Colossians The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And so all of you here today, the smallest in the kingdom, the least among you today, the least among us, you have more revelation and a better understanding of who Jesus is than the greatest prophet that ever lived before Christ. Isn't that incredible? If that wasn't enough, Peter then goes on to say, You don't only have an advantage over the prophets, you have an advantage over the angels themselves. In the things that have now been announced to you that through those who preach the good news, Peter says to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels in heaven peer into the mysteries of salvation, which are revealed by the Holy Spirit to the redeemed people, to God's elect. And the word used here by Peter in the Greek is stooping down or straining. The angels are, you know, in all their magnificence and their glory, they, they look down, they stoop down to see what God has done. One commentator put it, puts it, the angels peer over the battlements of heaven to behold what God has done in Christ Jesus. The cosmic sweep of God's redemption is all centered upon Christ And Peter says, that's whom you know and you love. And all the petty dreams of all of Earth's little tyrants, all of us down here like little ants through generations. All of them shrivel before the majesty of the great kingdom of God. Ministered to us by prophets, by apostles, all realized now in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. In our final moments, I want to linger a little longer with the angels. Let's look at this last verse just a little longer as Hebrews thirteen two says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So if there are angels here with us today, welcome. We're glad you're with us. As we walk through this life, we are surrounded, whether we realize it or not, by unseen forces, by both angels and demons that are moving about us. And we are so blissfully unaware As the poet Francis Thompson put it, we disturb an angel's wing every time we turn a stone. The enemies of Israel had surrounded Elisha, the prophet, in the town, and he had his servant there, and the servant was terrified. And Elisha looks to him and he says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he opens up the servant's eyes to see the mountain is filled with horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. Those are the heavenly hosts. And we worship the Lord, the King of the hosts. And so they stoop, they look, they wonder at this great thing God has done in our lives and for his people. And we also know that the angels in heaven are, are pure and undefiled. They, they worship and serve God in perfect obedience. They have no need of Christ's blood to cover them for the elect angels never sin. And yet they delight so much in the Lord that they take profound interest in the gospel because they cherish God's glory. If God cares about us, about redeeming fallen sinners, then angels care about it as well. Charles Spurgeon writes, we are their younger brothers, as it were. And we are by reason of our flesh and blood linked to materialism while they are pure spirits. Yet they do not envy us the love of God, neither do they despise us on account of our faults and follies. Though I think they must often wonder at us. The Lord Jesus told us that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because there is joy in God's heart. And the angels love God and they know it and they celebrate They stand in God's presence. And when God saves sinners through the power of the gospel, through the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, they can't keep quiet about it. They throw a party in heaven. And if you're a believer here today, there was one for you. There was an angel celebration for you. Their ministering spirits were told in Hebrews 1.14. They keep watch over all of God's children. There's a verse that Satan misquotes when he's in the wilderness with Jesus. And he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up. And that's true of every child of God. I was talking to my wife, Ashley, the other day. And I was saying that one of the things I can't wait to do in heaven when I get to heaven is meet my overworked angel. You know, <laughs> I want to meet the angel. Just an absolute ride keeping me alive. You know, keeping me, keeping me going. I to sit down and to hear him go. You want to hear what God's done? And for me to sit there and go, you want to hear what God's done? And we're just gushing over the love of God for eternity. It'll be splen- splendorous. It'll be glorious. You see, angels are constantly being surprised by God's goodness and his grace and his mercy, just as we are. They have the wisdom and intelligence of Ages. Yet Peter says the sufferings of Christ, the glories are mysterious to them. They love to think about them and to meditate on them and to inquire and search. They love to remember that glorious day when Christ rose from the dead. The Bible tells us that not even the angels know when Christ will return. And so they, like us, wait and anticipate. And I just imagine when we sing joy to the world, they're singing along with us. Because they're waiting for the day when Christ will return and make all things new. Again, one last Spurgeon quote. He says, these dear attendants of our wandering footsteps here below, these patient guardians of our nightly hours, these angel guides who shall be our companions in death when wife and child and friend can go no farther with us. These glorious beings shall learn from our lips In heaven, the manifold wisdom of God, they will cluster around us, amazed and gladdened as one by one we stand upon that sea of glass. And they will ask us to rehearse again and again the wonders of redeeming love and to tell them what conversion meant and what sanctification meant and how the power and wisdom and grace and patience of God were seen in the experience of each one of us. And we shall be their joyful teachers, world without end. Beloved, if these glorious mysteries now revealed to us were the things that occupy the minds of the prophets and the angels, how much more should we be concerned with God's word today? We have the full revelation of scripture revealed to us. And Peter says, if you want to have a living hope of salvation, let God's word wash you over. He wants you to be assured in your faith, have joy, hope and love overflow into all aspects of your life. Before we get into holy conduct, we must be masters of theology because then that will move us into doxology, love for God and love for neighbor. Get in the word. Get into the word. He who studies God's word will be conquered by it. I'm going to close with. Uh, A message from Dr. Michael Youssef. This is a paraphrase of of what he said, but this is how we preach Christ. This is how we preach Christ from Genesis to Revelation. This is our message. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb offered once for our sins. Leviticus, he is the high priest who intercedes for us and on our behalf. In Numbers, he is the one, he has the smitten rock who provides living water. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he is the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he is the great and final judge. In Ruth, he is the heavenly kinsman redeemer. In 1 and 2 Samuel, he is the anointed one of God, the prophet, priest, and our great king. In 1 and 2 Kings, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In First and Second Chronicles, he is the glory of the temple of God. In Ezra, he is the great teacher who comes from God. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken lives, our protection from our enemies. In Esther, he's the great protector of his people. In Job, Jesus is the only comforter and mediator for us in times of trouble. In the book of Psalms, he's our our good shepherd. Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes, the teacher filled with truth and wisdom. The Song of Solomon, he's the bridegroom coming for his bride. In Isaiah, Jesus is the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's the suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, he's the potter and we are the clay. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the man of fire and metal who rules from his heavenly throne. In Daniel, Jesus is the son of man who is coming in clouds of great glory, the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the love of God to the wayward sinner. In the book of Joel, he is the giver of the spirit who blesses and judges his people. In Amos, he is the author of judgment and of mercy. In Obadiah, he is the Lord of vengeance. In Jonah, he is the faithful prophet filled with compassion and mercy for those who are far off. In Micah, he is the one whose origins are from of old, the great intercessor. In Nahum, he is our stronghold in the days of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is the target of our faith, the wrath bearer for our sin. In Zephaniah, Jesus is our savior and hope for the day of the Lord. In Haggai, he is the desire of all nations. In Zechariah, the branch of Jehovah who would be betrayed. And in Malachi, he is the refiner's fire, the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. We preach Christ. We preach Christ. In John 5, Jesus says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believe Moses, Jesus says, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And so if you look to the Bible, as many have in the past, as just a rule book, just a moral guidebook, how do I live a better life? It's a self-help book. You've missed the point entirely. If you want that, go read Aesop's Fables. But if you look at the Bible, primarily not being about you, but about the suffering and the glories of Christ, then you see a story of rescue. This is a story in which the author himself steps in as the hero to save the day. Because of our sin, we deserved God's displeasure. But Jesus takes our place. The world offers us death, but Christ offers us life. And this is a story in which we love the author, and the surprising news is that he loves us back. And when you come to God's word looking for Jesus, God promises to reveal himself to you. If you do not know this Christ, the Christ of the prophets and the apostles, the Redeemer of whom I speak, I pray that God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit that thundered through their mouths, would thunder in your heart today because there could be a celebration for you in heaven. The angels are stooping down, they're looking, and they want to celebrate you. And so come to Christ, repent of your sin, look to him as your savior, and then let us join them today and celebrate God's great redemption and what he's done for us all. Let's pray.